Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. How's everybody doing out there? I'm trying to sound like a radio DJ. Our sponsor today is Marriage Supply. It just so happens I own that company. It is the best sex toy shop online, and none of that porn. Go check it out, marriagesupply.com. Thank Matt, you, how'd you like Toby. my pre-roll there? The, the ad I for my own company. It was very fresh. It didn't sound canned or anything. It was just natural, you know? Yeah, I know. Just real. Just raw. I'll tell you what, it is, uh, being a world-renowned sex toy dealer, <laughs> is that what you would, what you would call me? Well, out you, of, of all the things, out of all the things I'm renowned for, would sex toys be up there now? Well, I mean, you're, you're renowned as in renown, you know? Renown. Renown. I mean, so, I mean, aren't people listening to this all over the planet right now, the podcast? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they, they, and have you talked about it before? On on this podcast to people are all around the world. Yes, like, I have. It, okay, well then you're yeah. renowned to them now. I'm reblowing so up. You're renowned. You're renowned worldwide uh, for uh, as a sex toy uh, shop yeah. operator. So yes, that is true. I'm a, when job. I was little. When I was little, I remember thinking <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to be an operator, a shop operator of something. What could it be? <laughs> it's funny because uh, you know founder stories are like. You know how every stupid company has some stupid founder story, by the way? If that doesn't get on your nerves yet, it should. Let it start from now when I say when the founder has this story. Like, they practice that shit. They tell them them for any online business or whatever, you got to have your founder story. It's got to work in an elevator pitch. You got to tie it to a a struggle you had and how you overcame and what you want. You know, that's all. Every company that you like that's organic this or sustainably this, that permission pro social mission of the, I mean that's all I'm not saying it's not true but it's very, it's very a formatted thing to to yeah. do to be a founder with your story to to you know that transcends your product or whatever it's like they build that almost first yeah but I don't know I guess that's the nature of it you got to have a story well I was uh it's funny that you mentioned that Matt I Tell can remember your ye- story <laughs> I can remember years ago uh walking into my bedroom and I realized the problem immediately no toys in here. <laughs> this ain't fun. It, it, you ever been in a room without toys or with toys? Which one's more fun? It goes all the way back to when you were a kid and you you didn't have any toys and you went to your your kid Frank your fr- friend Frankie's house and he yeah. had a giant toy box full of toys and you said no matter what when I'm grown up I will have toys. I, w- I will always be surrounded with toys when I run the house and that there you are now. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, what's going on with you now? I have. I feel like your setup is different today for some reason. Mm-hmm. Like, are you using your normal computer no, setup and everything, or what's going on here? You're not. I, my normal computer. Because you've been computer, talking about your setup, how you've been working on it for like a week, right? 
I've been working getting on it just right for my whole life. That's pretty much my basic move is to customize my direct environment at all times to avoid doing anything directly productive. That's basically uh, all I do is I modify digital routing, cables, curtains. I'll, I even go so far as to clean and vacuum and polish before <laughs> I do any real work. You wouldn't believe how much customization can no, happen I've seen to an environment to avoid work. I've um, seen it. You, you were talking about it on the uh, the BC Clubber only episode. We do those on Mondays and Fridays. You're not in the BC Club. Join it. But uh, you were talking on that episode about uh, how you were – the whole world is getting smaller and cities don't mm-hmm. matter and all that stuff, but your little house, your little environment is so important and you've been it working is. on it. You know, you just, I mean, you've been running cable, like you said, clean and doing all this stuff. Got it totally set up and now something happened. Environmental what, design is basically my passion I've come to realize, but micro environment even more so and it's becoming more and more important. That's really weird, but that yeah. is true. But yes, I have everything so I'll draw diagrams. I'll think about it. I got everything just perfect. And, you know, the funny thing about it is uh, it's just right here with the kids in my house, but I've got this micro environment right here. And the damnedest thing is I feel like it's good for the kids, too, to see me in the environment, to see what I do, to see the projects I'm working on, to know what my connection to the world is. So I value that tremendously. But there's one liability with that, which is your son can get up at 4.30 in the morning and then you could be looking f- to find him, and you could find him imitating his father, which is such a wonderful thing. That was the whole point of me. Of That's what I was just saying. I love he did it. <laughs> that my kid's imitating me and learning from me about the things that I do and lead by example. Um, so, yes, I found Cosmo at 6 in the morning banging on my laptop with a jug of unsweetened tea poured into it. <laughs> Is what I it, found. It just like his daddy. Yeah. Just like his daddy. He was just trying to talk to the globe, you know, and communicate right. and type and solve problems <laughs> and create things. And, you know, I know what he was doing in his heart, so he I wasn't mad at him. Sweet tea, he just doesn't funny. have all the skills yet to do all the stuff. But, and I'm down one computer at the moment. So, oh, God. Um, that's, that's, you know, I got a picture now, of him doing when, it, too. So. When you saw it, you laugh? Are you mad or what? What's the, what's the father thing? Do you realize... You are angry, but you hold it in. What do you do? I, uh, you know, I have this thing. I mean, you know, everybody's different with their parenting, but I try to abuse my kids the least as possible. Yeah, I try to do the least child abuse that I can do. But, you know, there's a certain amount of anger or momentary uh, action to sweep them away from the area or handle it um, that's necessary. But really, I don't Any (laughs) profanity? You yeah, take yeah, the Lord's right, name in vain. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah, they're no stranger to profanity or, or natural reaction from their parents. I mean, they, they get that. That's, that doesn't startle them. Um, but I don't – I am not mad at him. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, there's no – there's no why did you do that or anything. Like, it's very, very clear that he is going to do whatever he, he – I mean, the question is, what is the total budget for his childhood – of destroying my gear. That's the right. wavelength I'm on. Is it how many thousands of dollars? I'm already right. committed to doing what I do and doing it in his presence and having my kids around. I mean, that's unavoidable. Yeah. So it's a matter of is there a type of Apple Care or insurance? Or like, what's the price I'm going to pay for having 
very expensive things near my kids. But it is a, a almost a principle of mine that they will have to have access to a lot of the, those things because it's just going to be around. Now, my nice guitar that's from 1950 is I don't need them to have access to that. Right. They can't. That needs to stay in the case, or I guess it's at the house now, but I have it put away. But I, I mean, I think about that. Like if I leave the guitar out. I mean, yeah. they're going to come back and be standing on it or something like that. It could happen. And that can happen to my electric guitar. That's that's basically where I draw the line. Or a computer I can replace. Right. There's a certain amount of that I'm prepared to tolerate or pay for. And I had to accept that. I certainly can't blame them for it. But, damn. The older yeah, some, the kid gets, the more I can start to, to blame them. But something not, you really care about, you got to keep away from them. And you have to yep. set that boundary. And they need to know how much it matters to you. But I've been finding the more absurd something is outrageous worse it is it almost makes me more uh not i'm nicer to them yeah like yeah, like yeah, when it's something when it's the little it. things like i'm on the phone and they and I go, hey y'all be quiet and they just won't that's when i I'm like i go i get my teeth <laughs> like my dad and the vein on the my forehead sticks out oh like, you don't you better you know i do all that but like Ruby uh, was pouring her cereal and just knocked over the tupperware bin that it was in and unbelievable amounts of of uh, honey nut Cheerios went everywhere and they're just gone. They're in the sink. Every, I mean, so much. And I was like, we just, it's a brand new box. You know, and, but because it was so absurd, there was so much mess immediately. We just start, we were able to laugh. Mm-hmm. And she's laughing because I'm it's like, such okay, a sure. big deal. It's like right. it's not like a little bit of anger could fix. You know, it's so you, you know you get mad at those things that could have almost not happen, or you could have almost prevented it. Like you're in right. the moment, on but something really bad happens, you're able to like pull back from that, right? Right. Yes. More so. So like yeah. when like when your daughter, uh, you know, I can picture that. Like if uh, let's say your daughter gets knocked up by her stupid idiot high school boyfriend, <laughs> you'll just die laughing. <laughs> The, yeah, yeah, the big Especially stuff. If it, yeah, if, if it's twins, oh my god, that's, that's <laughs> might as well be one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, the bigger stuff. It's just like, well, you know, what is that going? I mean, the odds are one of our kids is going to get knocked up or knock up somebody, right? I mean, we have well, so many kids uh, yeah, with everybody in do. Emory, and I mean, like, all, you mean all in the, high school though? I mean, there's a decent chance, right? Maybe, I mean. <laughs> Maybe contraception will be way better and all that stuff, but I mean, it's going to happen. And and the ideas about sex and everything are changing anyway. So I don't, I really don't know. I mean, no, that's hard. no, it's hard to predict. I mean, I think uh, uh, I'd like to. Do, I, I, I'm going to make the same mistake with uh, driverless cars that I will with pre, with with sexual yeah. encounters for my kids. I mean, I assume before when I had kids that by oh by the time they're driving, I mean everything will be driverless cars, you know. Yeah. Same with sex. But I mean by the time they're, you know, in this remote world, they won't be having sex. So it'll just right. be a virtual everything. They won't be actually interacting. I want yeah. to deal with that. It'll be online only by the time my kid's 16, right? Oh, like, yeah, you won't even have to touch each other. No, right. I mean, especially with COVID man. and all that. Yeah. yeah oh, it yeah, should be digital. Post-COVID sex. I haven't even thought right. about that idea. What is post-COVID sexual intercourse, what's it going to look like? Because it, the the more you can experience it without touching, the You're probably right. will start really selling. I mean, yeah, the, not, the more and not, more and more. not specifically that COVID is sexually transmitted because they say it's not. Like they were, no, no, were I know. Graf- there were graphics the early on, on and stuff that were saying you could do, you could like wear a mask while you do it or something. Like you can like. No, yeah, I I d- I've been tr- doing that for uh, years anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> that helps with your imagination. Not that kind of right? mask. You do the weird shit. Yeah, yeah, like a Zorro yeah. mask. <laughs> right. No, you do all. Yeah, you do all kind of weird swinger masks and yeah. stuff. Oh though. man, boy, furries, I, and costumes. Yeah. Not that. I just mean the end. Uh, what do you call it? A, 
Oh, in twenty, what in ninety five? Oh yeah, you wear the big stuff. What? Uh, it's funny. It does make me think. As bad as like purity culture and all that stuff is, there is something that probably helped people not get pregnant from purity culture too. Like there are, are like with every oh, yeah. bad thing, there are some, there's a few things where you're like, oh well. Like if there was no purity culture, would there be more babies or more abortions or or you know whatever it might be? Like the the bad of that, I'm not. You can take that as far as you want, and it gets worse and worse and worse. But I'm just saying, the idea there would be there was probably a lot of Christians that ended up not having sex. Sure. Well, I mean, it's not like it wasn't. It's not like or penetration. I mean, it's not like sex. it's not based on some some general wisdom for a, a certain society to right. d- do what it needs to do properly. Like, I mean, it's fun- it's quite functional thing, but at some point, it's gone maybe too far. Society's changed, or it got more locked to the idealism or the legalism of it than its function. Right. But its function of purity culture at, on a fundamental level is quite reasonable. Right, like yeah. somewhere behind that to have family and not have chaotic. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, it the far left, for instance, a, there's a really left wing point of view that does not get talked about, and it is anti-child uh, in the sense where it's like it's not anti-child; it's just anti-people procreating needlessly. Yes. Like an, from an economics point of view, right, or or a far left point of view, or anything, there or, are yeah. the even the elite, even the elitism of the left that people dislike might be able to be viewed from it, it doesn't want stupid people breeding; it just wants to control them or use right. them. Do you know what I mean? So there's a many reasons for many people not to want unwanted pregnancies. That's pretty right. universal. Like everybody understands, unwanted pregnancies are a devastating consequence for certain shapes of society that we want to have and certain people's lives. But that's what, that's what fucks us up so bad because the entire beginning, not that, I mean, that is a very recent idea because we came from Mm -hmm. needing as many people as possible. So you, you have sex as soon as you can. It, you know what I mean? To like get more workers, right? You get more protection, more, more, more people lifting and, Killing and doing all that stuff, and now we'd switched yeah, but, it to where it's dangerous if you have kids. Yeah, but purity culture comes in where you want your kids to be uh, that your daughters have to be from people you know and can control. Right, right. <laughs> you, right. That, that's that's when purity culture comes in. It's not random kids that you want at some point. Right. And all that is a product of the you know agricultural societal. This, you know, maybe it's true that way back in the tribal culture it was less important, and maybe yeah. people shared. But they took care of or whatever. That might be true. But if you're having these big agricultural societies and free rider problems, I mean, you would have males trying to impregnate as many females as possible with no responsibility. Yeah. Purity culture is quite a good solution uh, at some point in some way. And you attach yeah. it to religion and you attach it to whatever. But the problem is real. And that solution is real and reasonable to a point, you know. Right. But. Well, speaking of all this purity culture and sex, our guest today is Michael Robinson. Now, Matt, you weren't around. I interviewed Michael myself, and this is pretty interesting. He's a former pastor uh, who came out eventually, <laughs> but it's a long journey. So this one has it all. It has uh, church, sex, homosexuality, cheating, uh, entrepreneurship, all kinds of stuff. So uh, this is going to be a good one. So I'm excited to play this in a second. But first, Matt yeah, I'm going to tell you about some good music. And when I say good music, I'm talking about 
from a band that I've been listening to for mm, 17, 18 years now. That's Acceptance. They were the kings of the local Seattle scene when, when Emory made our start. They were who to beat. They were the in-charge it band that was going places. And they went off to a really quick career there and had some success and then were not able to, you know, last and put out follow-up albums and things like that. But now they are back. They have a record out on Tooth & Nail called Wild Free. It's out everywhere now, and you're hearing some of it. This is it that you're listening to. This is Acceptance' first album since 2017. They did some stuff then, but their main album was way back in like 2002 or three. So they've been back recently. Um, I even helped them work on that 2017 record a little bit, and I'm doing a conversation with them for Labeled coming up this week. So they're good friends of mine, good music. Uh, it's awesome stuff. Aaron Sprinkle works on it as part of their team. Vinyl's available at toothandnailrecords.merchnow.com as well as your local record store. So get on out there. Put the mask on. Go pick up a vinyl in real life. That'd be sweet. There's, there's, uh, there'll be lots of new music from Acceptance, so make sure to follow their Spotify account so you don't miss anything. Wild Free is available everywhere right now, so go check it out. The legendary Acceptance new music. So uh, well, let's just jump right into it. So you wrote yeah. us. Uh, this is Michael Robinson. And uh, so I was checking you out online and, and LinkedIn a little bit. How do you describe yourself? Because you're like a, a tech CEO, like uh, with 
kind of kind of like with pay systems, right? Like what what job wise, what are you doing? Yeah, so I mean, it's, I I kind of use the term serial entrepreneur. So you know, I I, I cut my teeth years ago uh, in ministry, um, and then after stepping out of ministry, the interesting thing is having been a pastor. You know, what do you say on your resume? you know, that other people are going to like, and then finding a job. So I found myself like stepping into like startup space with tech and kind of the same skills I had in ministry, man, like church planting and all that stuff. So raising money, building teams, building projects, all that kind of stuff, hacking things together, basically. And it just, it turned out to be a great fit. So yeah, now I'm working on um, two different projects. I've got one, like you say, for payment systems, um, that's really, really fresh, um, and a really cool one. And then another thing called billboard, which is a social media network that's going to launch in about eight weeks. And, uh, it's, it's really, I, I think it's going to be cool. We'll see, you know, like yeah. with anything you start, you never know. Is the play on that? Like, cause I mean, I'm a musician is the play like billboard. I was thinking billboard magazine or something like that. What was so, the, yeah. So my co-founders of that are, are two very prominent actors. Um, and their, their deal was like, when, you know, when you look online, it's really hard to like find a person when you look across all, unless they're super famous, right. right. Unless you look across all super or, or social media, it's really hard to find the one person. So they created this idea of billboard where you can go in and you have your profile, but on your profile, you're linked. Like you can link your Instagram, your Facebook, your Twitter, your SoundCloud, you know, whatever it is, like you can put, you can put your Venmo on there, you know, you can put everything in there and people can be connected to all of your social platforms and and find you in one spot. Well, cool. Very cool. So uh, I want to talk about that in a minute too, about uh, not being a pastor anymore, because you have a a good reason that you're not a pastor. I guess, I mean, like maybe, maybe lots of pastors have good reasons not to be pastors anymore, but that, that is one of my, it's not a fear, but it's a real problem or a real issue I see for pastors who want to leave ministry. What do they do? Like a lot of them have like seminary yeah. degrees and what do you, what else are you going to do with that degree? Or, you know, what, what job can you get? And, you know, you are uh, in a leadership role and then you might have right. to at a certain, you know, later in life, you might have to go down, you know, back to an you know entry level position or something like that, but we'll get to all yeah. that in a little bit. So, uh, I mean, let's just get it out of the way. You, sure. you, <laughs> we'll start. I, I want to go back and talk a little bit about your upbringing, but the reason you wrote us and we're talking to us is that you came out uh, gay later in life, I and did. Uh, yeah. and so we'll just go ahead and let that out. Like I said, the cat out of the bag there, just because you know I, I'm sure lots of folks do that. I mean, that's probably yeah. even maybe even more more of the norm, but it's probably a lot harder when you're a, a pastor or grew up in. Yeah, uh, it's crazy because I, you know, I thought I thought for the longest time like I was like some sort of unicorn story in the mix. You know, this is because, you know, because I was a pastor, you don't talk about it. I mean, you just really don't have the conversation, at least not for yourself. You talk about it for everybody else, but you sure as hell are not going to talk about it for yourself. So, you know, you kind of feel isolated and like you're this this unicorn crazy story. Um, but you know, the other side of it, I think what's crazy is I've, I'm not a unicorn. And as a matter of fact, the stories definitely talk about it, you know, I've spent a lot of time the last few years actually walking hand in hand. I, I say coaching guys that are coming out of ministry with the same story, you know, who, yeah. whose lives are, are making a big shift later in life, you know, and they're at that same stage I was at, and, you know, mid to late thirties and, and really making kind of coming to terms with who they are, you know, realizing that, um, at some point you just have to be honest with yourself, you know, it just right. really makes a difference in your mental health, your spiritual health, your emotional health, everything. Yeah. Homosexuality, but I'll even go, I mean, sexuality in general, the church is just handled so poorly because you, 
it feels like you can't really talk about anything. And if you talk about it to somebody, then what, what is going to happen? Like you, like you, for example, you could lose your job, your career, family and all that stuff. And so it really sets it up. I mean, there, we had, uh, I mean, even we had a while back, um, I forget the name of the lady. Um, but there was a church in, uh, California and the pastor's son, uh, had, some like uh, child pornography on his yeah uh, absolutely and, and I'm not comparing that to homosexuality but I'm the issue there would be who could he go and talk to like at what right. point could he say hey I'm having these these feelings or whatever and, and I, I'm not like I said I'm not comparing uh, homosexuality no, I mean, to pedophilia but. you know one of one of my really good friends in my ministry days and I'm mean, still a good friend is Ted Haggard and you know oh, anybody really? who's been around the church for a long time you know they've seen yeah well you don't have to be around church I mean if you watch the media news media in the early 2000s you know Ted showed up everywhere yes. CNN Fox Oprah you know whatever and you know, that's one of the things that we used to talk about a lot in, in Ted's story was, you know, the things that he struggled with around sexuality, around sexual addiction and things like that. The problem would be that the few times he took the risk to go talk to somebody about the things that were going on, his, you know, the, the, the pocket response is pray about it, let God do what he's going to do. But we don't want to have a conversation because it is uncomfortable. I mean, and admittedly, whether, whatever that conversation is, right. whether it's, you know, like you were referencing, uh, I, I'm assuming, of course, I've listened and don't miss episodes with you guys, but I, I also know the story a little more close-handedly, like with the Ortbergs, you know, and yes. when they're dealing with their yes. son, you know, what do you do? Because you're exactly right. When you get honest about something that's a little messy or a little different, it, it, your your career's at risk, your social life is at risk, your friend network is at risk, your income, right. I mean, just everything is, is on the table and it's messy. Well, that's what I wanted to say. It's, because you have to stay hidden, then you have to do things in a different way. Like, I mean, and, and that goes with anything. Like, I mean, you can drink alcohol in a healthy way, but if you have to hide it, then you start wow. doing weird things. Like you go drink by yourself in your car or, you know, you know, weird, weird things that you don't, if, if it was out in the open, you wouldn't do those things. You could actually do things in a healthy way in a, in a, right. in a right way. And so yeah, we, I joke, I joke about that a lot. When I was a senior pastor, um, you know, I, I love scotch, man. Like that's, I, I just love scotch. I, I had somebody kind of turn me on to like having an affinity force is a really ridiculously expensive thing to really like. But I remember, you know, as a pastor, like I couldn't like publicly drink at this, at this particular time, this particular church. So like I had an agreement with a guy at the liquor store, like I could meet him right when the store closed so that I could go in and get what I needed. So I knew yeah. nobody else would ever see me go in there to get a bottle of scotch like it and it's bad because you you develop this habit of like lying manipulating right. you know playing a part and it's dangerous it's dangerous because it's not just that one area it starts to affect like every area of your life right it really makes the thing like the thing that isn't that bad becomes bad because of the hiddenness of it but so let's yeah. get to real quickly so you grew up in the south and a christian family yes. and your dad was a pastor yeah. So, I mean, I'm a preacher's kid and a preacher's grandkid. So, you know, my, my family, uh, I mean, was just deeply set in a Southern Baptist church. And so, uh, which I loved. I mean, there's so much about it. I, you know, I hear you guys talk about it. There's so many things we can obviously look at and have PTSD as a result of. But, you know, for the most part, it was great. You know, I was yeah. the kid that was there every time the door was open because my dad was on staff. But, you know, Bible drills and Bible school and, you know, any and everything you can think of. And it was my life. I mean, it was a hundred percent everything um, that we did is everything that I knew. And it's funny because, 
you know, I, I do consulting. I work on a lot of business stuff. And the funny thing is I even had this conversation prior to us talking today with someone that the only thing I would ever say that I'm an expert at is theology and the Bible because it's so deeply ingrained in who I am. And I grew right. up, it wasn't just about like going to school and get a seminary degree, which I actually didn't do. Um, and it's funny, like my family was like, that would be a waste of money because you've like, you've grown up. Church was it. It was my world. And it's funny because even as a teenager, I was like, ah, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not doing this. And I saw how hard it can be, but what did I do? I, I say all the time, I just picked up the mantle and took on the family business and kept going. Right. So, uh, and that just probably felt really natural, but yeah. when was the first inclination that you were gay? Like what, what, when did you start going, wait a minute, I better not let this be seen. Yeah. You know, it was, I mean, it was in high school. I, you know, it's not, it, it's actually not something that I like woke up in my thirties and was like, Oh my gosh, it was, well, you know, one of those things I realized in high school and, and really tried to talk about it, tried to share it, but you know, it was, especially in the, you know, early nineties, this conversation was, you know, very different than it is today. Right. Um, not that the, I wouldn't say the conversation changed that much in church specifically, but yeah. um, culturally it's changed some, but you know, we, went into some counseling, some, you know, pray it away to chalked up to things like, Oh, well, you've looked at pornography. So that's probably, you're confused. You know, right. you've seen pornography and that'll confuse anybody. And, and because I was a, I was a good church kid. I mean, I was the moniker of, you know, church kid and the leader in the youth group. And, um, and so, you know, for me, it was kind of one of these things like I got to buckle down, you know, right. I, I believe what I've been taught a hundred percent that if I pray about it the right way, I do all the right things. If I set my life up the right way, then, then, you know, God will take care of it and this will be fixed and this will be changed. And so, you know, what's interesting is it would ebb and flow over the years, but yeah, I mean, it started in my teenage years. Who did you talk to? You felt comfortable enough to talk to family or friends or who? And, you know, was able, and I, I gotta say this, like, I you know, who knows if they'll ever hear this or not. My parents, you know, they may listen to it because I'm, you know, if I share it out there or something like that, but like I, I'm very lucky with my parents, even though they vehemently disagree um, with homosexuality. Like I'm comfortable enough to be able to talk to them. You know, I was raised in a household yeah. where nothing was off limits. We were able to talk. There's just a very prescriptive outcome that has to come from it, um, from a conservative mindset. I was able to talk to friends, um, you know, and I had some coworkers at the time um, that I was able to talk to at a, you know, typical high school job, but just kind of talking through it. But you know, I grew up in, you know, south of Nashville in the, I mean, the buckle of the Bible belt right in the middle of everything. And, you know, even if you weren't a church kid, church is still just so much a part of the Southern culture, right? So, right. Uh, you know, everybody was kind of like, well, you know, go to church, pray about it, you know, and it just at the time there was not, um, you know, nobody was kind of championing the idea of coming out. So for me, it was like, well, I got one choice. I got to buckle down and, and, and live a quote, normal life. And, you know, and, and I did for 20, 20 more years. And so you just shut it down. Did you ever act on it in your teens or twenties or? Not really. No. I mean, I, you know, I I would form relationships here and there just out of curiosity, but nothing, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't out really exploring or doing anything crazy. Um, and again, I think that's because I'm a, I'm a very much like an all in kind of person. So I made right. the decision, like, I'm not going to be this person. Cause if I'm this person, I could lose family, friends, church, you know, all these things. Um, and so I, I did like, I just locked it down. Um, and, 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 and your family and friends just thought, well, he's not, he fixed it. 
Or right. God fixed it, right? Is that what they thought? Right. Well, to some extent, I mean, you know, so my ex-wife, and it's interesting now, you know, um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. She she's at a place now where she'll totally talk about it. You know, I, I think we've had enough time and healing to, to come in between. But you need to look back because, I, you know, my outlets along the way were pornography and things like that, where yeah. I could kind of bend towards the curiosity and kind of satisfy sexuality and in some form or another and justify it. Like, oh, if I just go, you know, look right. at porn, at least I'm not touching someone else right. or doing something else. And, but you know, the thing was, is that it was, it was there enough, like she would find, find it. And then of course it was always these just awkward, horrible conversations. Like, you know, it's one thing to, for your spouse to find you looking at porn. It's another thing when your spouse finds you looking at porn, that's completely right. <laughs> what you think your life is. Right. And, and then she would ask the questions like, Oh, why are you looking at that? It's like, I don't, I'm just curious, you know, like I would, you know, you right. kind of throw the answers out because you know what people need and want to hear right? Uh, and to make everything okay. And so, you know, and I, I can remember very pivotally um, probably about four years before you know, really coming out and then making the change in life. We had one of those instances. And she said to me, we were, um, and crazy enough, it was on our anniversary. Like, this is like the worst kind of situation, right? right. She caught like the day of our anniversary. <laughs> we're out of town. I'm taking her to dinner at the place where I proposed to her. Like, it's supposed to be this like epic thing. And we're on the way and we're, it just was for her. It didn't feel right. as much for me. I didn't have the, the necessarily shame thing, but, uh, She's like, at what point am I going to wake up and find the person instead of a video? You know, wow. what point are you going to, you know, are you going to have to come to terms with maybe I don't have the equipment that you want and, and desire. And, and I played it off. You know, I said all the right things to yeah, make everything right. feel better. But, you know, you go back and those reels will play over in your head so vividly because, you know, like I remember sitting that moment thinking maybe you should just be honest. You know, maybe you should just put it all on the table and deal with right. it but you know that's so hard that's so scary and, and you learned at an early age what you said a minute ago rings so true to me you learned what people want and need and so yep. you give them that and and then you yeah. can you, and then that way you can keep yourself safe you can build up some a few defenses right. you can all that stuff and so that you know what they need and if you and what you start give it to them you start seeing it more and more you're like oh, i'll just do this and exactly. that way i can keep this you know. I, i've said listen being being a, being a pastor and i'm, I'm really careful is like i want to be very clear like I love the church. I love ministry. I love the gospel. And that's, you know, it's a big piece of what I, I spent a lot of time talking about. Cause so many times, you know, this conversation turns into like, you got to give up your faith for sexuality right. or give up your sexuality for faith. And then people who've, and it's traumatic to go through this. And then a lot of people come out with PTSD and they're angry at God or they're angry at the church. Or the, and I'm not there. Like I've come, come through those stages of healing, but, um, so I preface that because what I'm about to say will come across as if I'm throwing daggers at, right. at church or ministry, but like ministry taught me to be the best manipulative liar that ever existed because you learn to people please. Right. And, you know, and I pastor mega churches, so I didn't just pastor your run of the mill 80 member church. Right. So you've got even more things to juggle. I've got dozens of dozens and dozens of staff members. I've got hundreds of volunteers, thousands of attendees on the weekend. And you're trying to be nice and make people feel inspired and good and encouraged. And, you know, and so you try to minimize tensions and frictions and all those sorts of things. And so not only was I doing it at home, but I was doing it at work and, you know, doing it in my, my pro, quote, professional life. And I got good at it, man. I mean, I was really, really good at it. Yeah. A confidence man, a con man, confidence man. That's, that's what yeah. they call that. Because, I mean, you are understanding 
if you give your real truth, then people aren't going to be able to handle it. So why give it to them anyway? I think that's what a lot of people, yeah. e- even now in, in some bad, really bad ways, I would even say in, in a lot of social media. And I think people are learning that more and more. Don't give the real you because just give this, you know, platform, uh, you know, yeah. person. And then that way you can kind of avoid the sticky issues that, you know, you don't want to face. That's um, exactly right. I, w- I wanted to ask you too, though. So it is hard for me. So you were married for how many years? 18. 18 years and struggled, maybe hoped it would go away or, or yeah. you, and you felt you met, you met your, your, this lady and got married to her. Were you in love or was it, was it friendship? Yeah, so what you, was that? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a really valid question, right? Like, and the answer to that is genuinely yes. And genuinely no. Like I married my best friend. Like we were just good friends. Like we genuinely, so we met in the church youth group when we were in high school and we just had a great friendship. Like, uh, you know, she had a crazy family and I was probably one of those few people who didn't really care, didn't question those things. So it made her comfortable. Uh, you know, she's a somewhat introverted person, although that's changed over the course. She was a pastor's wife. You can't say too introverted right. or do youth ministry and, and pastoral ministry, but um, I don't know. It just worked. We, you know, we were young when we met. So we spent five years dating. And I think by the end of that five years, for me, it wasn't a hard decision to get married because it's like, well, this is the most comfortable relationship I have. It's safe. You know, we care about each other. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, and I still, I, I say it all the time. I tell her a lot. I, you know, I'm, we're still, we're like great friends. But did um, you have the, like, uh, like me, I, I, did you have the Christian dude try not to have sex, but y'all, y'all fooled around? Did you, I mean, like, was there no, sexual issues no, so at all there? That, you know, that was always the interesting thing is I always kind of felt really righteous about it because it didn't really, <laughs> it, it didn't. No I mean, problem we, for me. <laughs> yeah, I like, we would, we would make out. I mean, that's a, it's an operative term i mean there were times don't get me wrong i mean hormones and teenagers i I, gay straight doesn't matter i don't really care like there are definitely times i found myself like oh i could totally have sex right now and you know whatever and you know and she's an all-in so she didn't grow up in church so she like i the first sunday i met her she had been invited by a friend got saved at church got baptized yeah and so like for it's funny like her dad her her parents like her mom and dad they were the type that if you're going to drink we'll buy you do it here you know? And so like it, she didn't have a a familial cultural upbringing that would have said, don't have sex before you're married. But because she had such good relationships with church and love church, like she was those very, very few times that I would have been tempted to like, Oh, we could just fool around and do this. Like it was, she was easy for her to say no, but then again, the vast majority of the time that really wasn't my struggle. I wasn't like lusting over somebody and just dying to have sex and just not with her, which you know, that's, you know, and I'll, you know, we talk about, I'm sure, cause you'll ask me questions about it as far as, you know, what happens when you go through the divorce. Cause there's another phrase that I use with her later in life that I, I look back now and like, that's what I've actually non-verbally been saying the entire time. Yeah. So you get married to your best friend and you do have sex a few times cause you have kids, right? I think what do you, y'all have seven kids, but uh, some adopted yeah. and Correct. Yeah. So we've got, we have, we fostered two girls, we adopted two girls internationally, and then we have three boys that are biological. And, you know, it's interesting because people are across the spectrum. You know, there's a lot of people who's like, they got into sexless marriages because they were just trying to have the normalcy. 
ours was not sexless and I didn't necessarily have to work at it, you know, in that sense. And sometimes that's what I was going to ask you. Was it like, uh, was it like, because you actually loved her? That yeah, it was, it, you I, it's were like able I didn't to, have yeah. to manufacture. I really loved her. Right. And it wasn't that she's, she was very attractive to me um, in that sense because of that love. And, you know, and look, it is what it is. Like I, I say it because everybody asks these questions. Like she was the type because she struggled with self-esteem. Like when we did have sex, the lights were off. There was never like, there was no, so I didn't have to like try to visually go somewhere else because it was in the dark. I didn't, I could do whatever I wanted in my head right. in order. And, and then at the same time, look, men are wired mostly different. And this is not true for everybody, but like sex is sex. So I'm going to get off like, okay. Right. You know, like I'm right. going to do this. At least I can legitimately do this and not feel guilty about it. Right. With a person that you really care about. So right. that, yeah, yeah. I, I, I could see that makes total sense, but I just know a lot of people out there. I'm sure you've gotten that a ton. Well, you had sex with your wife. So are you really gay? I'm sure you've probably gotten that question. Oh, maybe listen, I get, this, you know, you get so much, especially you come out late in life and the gay community is interesting because, you know, here you've got a community that screams for equality and don't be prejudiced against me. And yet internally it's as fractured as anything else, you know? Really? And it, it's just interesting because, you know, for a long time, like, uh, yeah, I mean, that's really the long and short of it is yes. People ask that question. Are you genuinely, is that, are you really gay or is this just a matter of like, and then the Christian, the Christian question to this, are you just lustful and giving into your desires? Right. You know, and that kind of, it's just like, no, it's, like, it's such, it's more than the sex. It's a spiritual, emotional depth that, and, but because we don't talk about it because we don't really teach right. it. And because society is really starting to understand the dynamics in the psychology and the physiology of the makeup of sexuality, you know, nobody, nobody was teaching that when we were growing up, you know, what that looks like and what that connection means and how we're wired from the inside out. Right. And the, the real downside that I do see to this is the church gets off the hook and doesn't have to take responsibility for saying, this is the way you have to be, Michael. You, you need to be this way. Even if it's unsaid, you know, even if somebody's not saying it to you, right. you know what they're going to think or what they're going to do and you know what's expected. And so just like before, you know what people wanted. And so you did it. it I mean, right. if, it, if you would have been free to be gay in your teens, then you probably wouldn't have ended up being married. You probably had a great friendship Correct. with your wife, yeah. but not a marriage. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And you know, that's the weird, some of that weird internal struggle. And again, there's a lot of us with this story and you know, a lot of guys, you know, prominent guys in the Christian community who have this story, you know, are friends of mine. We talked about this a lot, you know, and it's an interesting thing is, yeah, that's exactly right. I wouldn't have got married. It wouldn't be my general story. And yet I'm so thankful it's my story. You know, I look at like, I wouldn't have my kids and, you know, they're, they're like the highlight of my life, you know, and, and those years of ministry and all those things that I did, I say, and I'm so thankful for those too. So like yeah. you look at it and go, okay, so it's like life is somewhat fractured in two pieces as a result of it. But the first piece wasn't bad. Like I right. didn't have a bad marriage. I didn't have a bad relationship. Right. I just had the wrong marriage and the wrong relationship. So how did it all come to a head and come to an end? Were you still a pastor or? Oh, no, actually. So this is, and I say this, like it gives me some sort of leg up on integrity here. Cause it doesn't, but I had ministry. I planted a church. It's been like four years building this church hard. And I come in and it's like rocket success, mega church. Right. So my egotistical self blows in, you know, who's who in the church world. Right. right? And, and those were my buddies, by the way. So that's the other side is I had hard circle of the who's who in the past. Oh, really? Were you palling around with the, the big boys? Yeah. Like, you the, know, like, I mean, you know, the Driscoll's and the Furtick's and all, you know, really, this, like, that was your crew. Oh, 
you know, like I, 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 that was just my world. And I grew up around it too. My dad was really successful in ministry. My grandfather was the head of publishing for Lifeway. So like oh, he wow. published everybody's books. Like, so I grew up like hanging out with Rick Warren and Billy Graham and, you know, my, my grandfather's best friend is, is Henry Blackaby. So, you know, I, and it's funny, my first wedding was on a beach in Hawaii, like with 10 people, because my ex-wife and I were just real simple. Henry Blackaby sent a letter to me that God wouldn't bless my marriage because we didn't get married inside a church. Right. (laughs) So like, I I just had all these like deep inner circle things anyway. So I go to Austin, do this thing. And it, we never grew past a hundred people in this church. Now, great years of ministry, incredibly wonderful. I started a few businesses to fund the church because I was reaching the LGBT homeless addicts, like my biggest weekly offering was 36 bucks in four years of leading that church. So I had to have some way to like fund it. My business partner stole all my money, embezzled everything. And my, my ex-wife and I woke up broke one day and we had to, like, I had to shut the church down. I had to, you know, my business was gone. I was broke. And I basically, and granted at the time, you know, I'm in my early thirties at the time, I just kind of hit like midlife crisis. Like, yeah. but I kind of had to like, F you God moment. Like I've given you everything. I've done all this stuff. Right. And I just took the brakes off. And so we had relocated our family, everything. And for the next year and a half, I, I just spent, I, I just had affairs. I just, that, that's when the wheels came off. No yeah. way. So that once you I lost your business around. Yeah. Wow. So, so I took a job where I traveled and yeah. because I was really good at telling people what they wanted to hear and, you know, putting up the facade, like I, I handled it. Like, I mean, it was awful. And yet at the same time, I was good at it. Right. Um, and so you kind of hit the crisis and I didn't get divorced as a result of that. Um, so that just brought everything to a head. It brought that conversation back up because I didn't have an affair with women. Right. And, you know, like I even had it, like when I had the conversation with family, like I'm sitting with my parents and like confessing that I've done this. And my mom's like, how'd you meet this woman? I was like, it's not a woman, you know, like awkward conversation along the way. So we went through some heavy counseling. We worked on our marriage. We made a dedication. Like we can do, we can still do this. Like we'll not give in to this. We'll keep our family together. And I'll finally get the right healing, get the right therapy or whatever. And you know, we spent a few more years doing it. I did go back into ministry, um, took another church in Texas, a mega church out there, spent four months on staff. And I've always been the kind of pastor who like those people fill in anything you want in that category would come to the church. And so this church had decided they wanted to be more diverse. They wanted to reach messy people. So all of a sudden the, you know, the gay lesbian community is starting to show up. The different ethnicities are showing up, different so you know, socioeconomic demographics are showing up. And within four and a half months, this church fired me because they really didn't want those people. Right. So that's really when it broke. And I like it made me really start to examine me and started to examine the relationship. And so at that point, my ex-wife and I kind of internally started making the decision like it, it we we don't see any other outcome. What like, was if it, we're going to be healthy. We got to do this. What was it like that first time that you were uh finally being able to act on your sexual desire. Like what, I mean, what, it was like, what, what, but it you was were at, scary, but it was exciting. So you were at a really low point mentally, emotionally, physically, maybe yeah. you lost your, your job partner had stabbed you in the back in a way you got this other job and you were just like, was it really God? I did all this. I'm even married and I'm just not gonna I mean, I mean, yeah, cause it I wasn't, you weren't trying to take it out on your wife. You were you? Are, yeah. You, I mean, you, as verbally as you and I are talking, like I remember sitting 
in my house at the time before I made a decision to do anything or took the brakes off. And I remember like, literally, like we're talking now saying, God, I have literally given you everything. Like I gave ministry life. I've worked my butt off. I, I faithful to my wife, you know, we've adopted these kids. We built this family. Like we've done everything the way it's supposed to be. And yet I go to bed every night, unhappy with who I am, with where I'm at, with, I feel like I lie to everybody everybody about about you right, know the right. truth and i'm done because nothing and there's no reason i shouldn't be happy i should be happy everything's good i mean other than losing my business which was devastating but like everything else about my life was good i mean it was really good and i was just just distraught and i just said like god that's it i'm done like i'm yeah. done at this moment i don't i've done it and i'm now going to do it my way and I'm going to just give it a shot see if I can find happiness. Yeah. And you said it was, it was really scary. Did it feel like, Oh, finally, this is right. Like were, were you, did yeah, you feel invigorating did. or it did because the, the person, the person that I had the affair with that, like I genuinely fell in love with that person. Um, like genuinely the very first person that you had sex with. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And maybe because I was so emotionally, now I wouldn't right. say it was healthy, but I mean, it was genuine. Like it, yeah. and that actually is what shook me to the core. Because then I realized this wasn't, you know, this wasn't about sex. Right. This was, this was literally about unmet needs that were so deep that I didn't understand because I had no reference point to understand them. And it, it just scared, I mean, it scared the hell out of me. Yeah, I'm sure. Especially if you started having feelings. I was like, I was happy. And that's what I really didn't know what to do with. Were you able to stop that relationship before you went back into pastoring? Did you shut it all down yes, or what? I did. Yeah, I was able, I was, thankfully, I mean, you know. But I, did you think I should sh- shut it down and try this again? Or what What made you go back to the no, marriage so and the straight life? Is, so some of the counsel that we got along the way from different people that were helping us kind of heal through this thing and get yeah. back to, to normal, um, it basically said, look, it, you know, one of the best ways for for men and this was this is such an interesting thing because this is a whole nother subject matter we get into like the misogyny and patriarchy yeah. of you know culture in the church but like men that men that are built as leaders heal best when they're doing what they're called to do so the best thing you could do in this healing process is go back to being a pastor and like i genuinely believed it because i loved it so much right so i did and and being a pastor was great and it did because here's what happens as a pastor i was too busy to do anything else I was too busy to be worried about anything else. I was too busy to get involved in anything else. And so from that standpoint, yeah, it's a great pacifier to get, you know, to keep you from, from messing up, but it, it didn't change what was happening in my heart. And then that church let you go. And that's when everything kind of came to a head. You were just like, I'm not going to do it anymore or what? Yeah. Just basically at that point, I'm like, look, you know, obviously following this prescriptive, ideology of fix and repair, which is so much of broken things. And then you can be okay. I just realized like it wasn't working. Nothing was nothing. But I also came to the realization. So in, in, in this entire timeline, like I started going to Israel because every, you know, every mega church pastor has to start making right. trips to Israel. It looks like you really, but I did it with a good friend who actually lives there. So I got a very different view of Israel and he had really gone through kind of this deconstruction and reconstruction of faith. So I was getting a different view of it. And I got inspired to start reading the scriptures in Aramaic and the, the gospels and just seeing, not that it changed the gospel, but it just changed the view of Jesus. 
you know, passages like the word was made flesh and dwelt among men was always taught to me like, hey, the world screwed up. Jesus has a job to do. God said, get down there and do it. So he made him a man and he did it. But in the Aramaic, which is the way, you know, the disciples and Jesus talked and the way that script was recorded was it just says the word chose to become flesh and live a life amongst his creation. And all of a sudden I was like, man, Jesus, like he chose to come do this. Like he wanted to be here. And then you start looking at those stories like Jesus and the woman at the well. Like, of course, he's like, oh, you've been married four times. This guy you're with now is not your husband. And you're not happy. Like you're looking for the wrong thing. What he didn't say to her is, why are you an adulteress? Why do you keep marrying these guys? Why are you screwing around? Why are like none of that dialogue happened in that interchange with Jesus? All Jesus says, I got something better for you. I got hope for you. You know, and you look at even the woman caught in adultery, because in this this sexuality conversation, it's really funny. You can play the hermeneutics game and reconstruct all the words and decide whether or not it's the word homosexual or not, or yeah. what the connotation is. And then people still come at me pointing that the, the woman caught in adultery, and like Jesus said, go and sin no more. Like, yeah, but right before he said that, what he said to her is, I don't condemn you and neither can they. Right. Because right. he wasn't here to condemn you. He was here to just be with his creation and show us love. And as a more I kind of journeyed down seeing Jesus that way, I came to peace with Rose and there was nothing to fix. I didn't have to be fixed. I didn't need to be repaired. I needed to actually be okay with who I was. Right. Even though that path is very difficult, right? So you, oh, it was hell. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, so, you know, I referenced this earlier, the thing that eventually I had to say to my ex-wife, and it's like the worst, it's the worst thing you could say to a person. It's truly the worst thing. And yet, the only way for both of us to find healing. And I just had finally had to say to her one day, I was like, listen, I do love you. I just don't want you. Wow. And like I knew, I knew when those words came out of my mouth, what that meant for her because right. I did love her yeah. and, and she didn't want anything different. Yeah. She didn't want a cheating husband. She didn't want to deal with the issues, but she did not want me. Right. right. So, and and yet, as devastating as it was, and see, again, hindsight is now we're so far down the road that she would tell you those words still hurt to think about. And they're still devastating. But she's so thankful because now she's in a place of freedom to have somebody that can fully love her the way she should be loved. And I was able, that was the first time in my life I think I was actually honest. Like, you know, not that everything in my life was a lie or that I lied all the time, but I mean, it's just one of those things. It was the first time at the heart level, at the base level, like it was just honest. And at that point, it was this silent deconstruction because she and I, you know, when the affairs came out, we went to family, we went to friends, we got help, we stopped counseling with us. By the time we got to that place, we just made the decision like, this is us and we got to work on this. And so we very quietly, very privately just decon started deconstructing life. Yeah. And so by the time, like we started talking to family and friends, like we were already all the way down the road. Yeah. And what about kids? Oh, kid, that was another whole issue, right? Yeah. Another, and, that's, yeah. and that's part of what we did is we wanted to walk it out very carefully for the kids. Right. Um, you know, so we, we cohabitated in the same house for a while. You know, we just slowly, carefully dissected life. And, you know, surprisingly, you know, you do worry. Like I, I definitely lost a lot of sleep in those early days. Like, what am I doing to my kids? You know, what's going to happen right. as a result of this? You know, what's the damage that's going to be done to them? And you want to add complexity to the whole thing. My, my ex-wife, her parents divorced for the same reason when she was little. 
No way. So she had PTSD. Now she had a great relationship. Her parents were best friends. Like by the time I came along, I thought it was like the weirdest screw. That's when I, when I referenced, like she had a crazy family. Like when I started dating my wife, her dad and her dad had remarried a woman because at the time he always had to like have a wife because to be normal, you had to give the normal persona. Right. So every once in a while he'd marry a woman just kind of, just find a lady and marry her. <laughs> and she gets mortified every time I tell the story, but it's the best story on the planet. When I met her, I met her at church and I only met her mom. I didn't even know her parents were divorced. So I go to pick her up for our first date, right? So her dad answers the door, comes to the door. I meet him for the first time. Then her mom shows up. So again, I still, there's no reason for me to like, oh, they're divorced. But then the stepmom shows up and then the stepdad shows up in the same place. And I'm like, holy crap, this isn't prom. Like, I'm just taking her to dinner for the first right. time. Like, I didn't, everybody doesn't need to show up. And then, but then I realized they all live in the same house because her dad had built this really big house and traveled full time and had an apartment off the side. So her mom and stepdad lived in the apartment and her dad and his wife lived in the main house and they just made their family work. And it was like, so, but it was so normal when I was in it. Like, it didn't feel weird. I remember going home and telling my parents about it. They're like, you shouldn't date this girl. Something's wrong with their family. You know, like you can't, um, you know. So, but, but she had the PTSD. So I, for her, like, there's that shame and guilt of like having a gay dad in the 90s, right? right? And she didn't talk about it too much. So I think I took for granted, like, oh, well, your family did this. Like, y'all navigated this and everybody's healthy and happy and okay. Yes, I can see some of the bits and pieces that were kind of screwy, but, you know, for the most part, like, and, and Allison would tell you, like, she didn't, she wouldn't claim to have come from a divorced family. Like, she didn't have those issues of, like, whose house do we go to or who do we right. get to spend time with because her parents just made it work. And so there was a lot that I just assumed but she had a lot of PTSD of having to feel like she had to hide because she didn't need her friends to know. She didn't want people to know what was going on. And she, she projected that to our kids, but it took a while to kind of figure that out. And so the most wise thing, and then listen, Allison's like brilliant, wise woman. Like I can't say enough about it, but she was really smart in our process. Like we're going to go through the divorce and then we'll have the sexuality conversation later. We're not going to do them together because divorce is hard enough on kids. Yeah. Let's not wrap those negative emotions around the concept of sexuality so that things don't get convoluted and confused. Yeah. So it took a while and it wasn't until I met my husband that, and he came into the picture that we decided to have the conversation with the kids. And um, I remember we had age appropriate cause they kind of span all the spectrum of age, but in my older, my older kids already knew like my oldest, but the younger kids just kind of, well, we just didn't talk about it. Right. And um, I remember sitting down with my youngest, youngest to, well, my youngest at the time, he was like just barely five years old. So there's no conversation even be had there around sexuality. But, right. You know, we sit down with the, my girls, they're eight and 10 at the time. And Allison starts the conversation. She goes, do you know what it means to be gay? And my eight year old just slams her hand on the table. She goes, I knew it. Dad's going to marry Cameron. Right. And like, just the perceptiveness of kids. Right. And then, and for her, that was a waking up moment of realizing like the, the trauma PTSD stuff that she dealt with and carried wasn't present for our kids because we didn't raise our kids. Even though we came out of a conservative world, we didn't raise our kids that way. We did right. ministry and said the doors open. There were all sorts of people in and out of our house. We were around drug addicts and homeless and LGBT and whatever. And we never differentiated. So my kids didn't grow up knowing that there was something intrinsically wrong with being different. 
And so it's, it's been cool to watch with my kids, like, uh, you know, to see that they just haven't missed a beat. And it doesn't mean, look, I'm not ignorant because if somebody's going to listen to this and say, Oh, you're idealistic. Like your kids aren't going to have issues. Of course they're going to have issues. I'm a parent. Every parent creates issues for the kid, you know, whether you got my story or not. So, you know, I'll pay a price for certain things somewhere down the road. But I say this often, Toby, it's like 90% of the, the, the heartache struggles and the hard days that I have even today are actually a result of that first half of my life where I lied to everybody and wasn't authentic because everything that's happened since then has been good and it's been peaceful. And the, the, the tensions that I have and the, the struggles that I face or the bad conversations, they're absolutely a hundred percent a result of not being honest and authentic for the first 30 some years of my life and having to reconcile that with people who don't know how to handle that because right. they knew me one way and now I'm a different person to them. Yeah. The truth really does set you free. It's funny. And like you said, I think people, it, the truth is really hard. Often it's stranger than fiction. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's wild and people don't want to accept it. So even like with your truth, it's very, it's so much easier for somebody to go, well, you're just, that's just lust or you're just perverted, or you're just acting on some impulse thing. When you're saying, no, I'm trying to tell you the truth. This is the truth. Now, we can talk about the truth as much as you want, but but you notice people start, uh, when you tell someone the truth, oftentimes it's, it, they want to think about the other aspects, even like with your wife, when you told her yeah. you, you loved her, but you didn't want her. I'm certain that had to hurt so bad that she was probably angry and mad and Absolutely. all this, but, but she could not deny that you were telling her the truth because it hurt so bad. That must, it must've been the truth. Well, and that's the thing is I, I you know, I can look back and the, the grace and, and the love that she's always offered is powerful. And again, we all have our ugly moments. We've had plenty of ugly moments in this thing. Right. And she's, she's definitely shown some ugly moments herself, just like I have, but, but her heart in it was always, you've got to be healthy and whole right? and, right. and you need to be okay. And if that means that I have to give up too in this process, then that's what I'm going to do because this is, we both have to get there. So what does life look like now? Like how long have y'all been divorced and you've been, you're remarried now? So, yeah, so we have, you know, I, I met a, a great, you know, great guy um, who happens to be a preacher's kid, too. Oh. <laughs> so Perfect preacher. You know, he's got he, he's one of these days he's going to have to unpack his story because he's a preacher's kid. And so my husband's black. So the and I, and I say that only because I've got a multiracial family anyway. So, like, I tick all of the good media boxes. Right. Like for marketing and all this yeah, stuff. You're so, perfect. You know, I'm gay. I've got a I've got a black husband. I've got black kids. I've got a Hispanic kid. I've got a biracial kid. I've got ginger kids. So I right. say all the time, all my kids are minorities. But. Um, you know, I was married. I was a pastor. Now I'm out of gay, you know, I mean, just all these kind of things. Um, anyway, Cameron's just, I, you know, it was solid. I met, I mean, the first day I met him, I knew like, it was kind of one of those kind of crazy, you know, you hear those like, Oh, love at first sight. Or, you know, like I just surrounded, I was like, this is the, this is the person, like, this is the kind of person. And this is, you know, I knew we knew enough about each other. We both, we didn't, we wouldn't say that to each other for the longest time. Like looking back we we both walked away from the first time we went and had coffee and we both walked away and we're like, crap, this is bad. Cause like, we, we know this is it. And, um, but he's a preacher's kid. And I, I say this cause again, the complexity of different parts of our story. He's, he's one of four siblings. Um, his dad pastors a church up in Illinois and there are three boys and one girl and all three boys are gay. So his, his parents and family, they've got a different dynamic of how they've had to walk that journey. But I'm the first, he is the first one to bring a guy home. 
dynamic of conversation, even though he's not the oldest and he's not the only one. Um, there was a, you know, some reconciling and conversation there with his family and, and doing that. But you know what, they've, his family's amazing. His parents are great and they haven't missed a beat and welcoming me to the family. My parents struggled for a while. I mean, there, there's sure. definitely been hard moments there. They welcomed Cameron in. My grandparents have actually been the ones that surprised me. You know, like I, I thought my, you know, my grandfather was the head of publishing for Lifeway. My grandmother yeah. was like in the Gaither vocal band stuff. And, you know, it's just very conservative. So I'm like mortified because I love them. Like they love him. Like she's like, we go over and hang out with them and talk to like this, no thing. Like she calls to check on him. <laughs> you know, wow. like um, my kids haven't missed a beat. They love him like crazy. He and Allison get along very well. Um, you know, which you never know how that dynamic is going to work. Um, but you know, it, it's, uh, and again, I catch a lot of flack for this, especially from, you know, the Christian and conservative community it's a big modern family and it just works, you yeah. know, um, later tonight, we'll all be sitting at the ball game, watching my youngest son play ball and we'll all sit together. And nine out of 10 times, the craziest thing is we'll all go sit together and Allison and Cameron end up sitting next to each other. And I'm the one out on the end. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's, um, you know, we, we had dinner with my parents here, I don't know, a month or two ago. And I had to laugh because Allison and the, Allison, the kids and Cameron and I are there. My grandparents are there. My, my mom made dinner and we sit down at the table and it's me and Allison and Cameron all sitting next to each other, you know, and it just, it, you know, to the outside world. I think sometimes the people who have had to readjust to our new reality, sometimes the hardest adjustment isn't me being gay, but the fact that we all get along. Okay. Yeah. Has your wife moved on as well? She, she had, she had an early relationship that didn't work. Um, but she, she's got a great guy right now. We'll see, we'll see what comes of it. He's a, he's a stellar, stellar dude. Um, and you know, seems to tick all the boxes, but yeah. you know, I give her a lot of credit. She, after coming out of a really bad relationship initially, um, I think she kind of, at that point, she's like, screw it. Nobody's going to marry me. I got five, you know, I've still got five kids at home, right. you know, who, who wants to take on that baggage and all this stuff. And so she's been taking it slow, but I, I can't wait. Like I'm super excited for her to kind of settle down into that for herself. Cause yeah. you know, I, I, because I do care about her. I do love her and I want to see her completely happy. Last question is what about God? Are you, did, did you, you didn't lose your faith or are you, do you attend church? What's going on? I'm a square, you know, I, I never, I, I didn't in high school when I first started and, and kind of looking at everything and never along the way I lost my I lost my faith for that moment not because of my sexuality I lost my faith in that moment because I did everything right and life fell apart and it's because I I bought the theology that if you do everything right life's going to be great you know and right. um but but the sexuality conversation and faith I didn't have to I never felt like I had to give one up to have the other and you know, really coming to grips with who Jesus is and seeing him for who he is was really huge. But then just taking a look at the scripture as a whole, I think one of the most profound things you go back and reread the scripture. And I looked at Psalm, you know, and, and we've got that passion. We love, you know, we love to talk about this baby dedication stuff. You were masterfully made, you know, knit together in your mother's right. womb. But there's a piece of that passage, man, that like we don't teach things like this in church because all of a sudden we have to reconcile what it means. But in the back of that verse, it says every day of your life was written before one of them came to be. And I have to ask the question, if every day was written and God knew, then where I am today, he authored that. And see, if I say that out loud as a pastor, if I said that as a pastor, 
Oh, Man, yeah. you talk about like a revolt and burn the church down and, you know, hang me out front right. as a moniker for, you know, hypocrisy and heresy and all kinds of stuff. But that's plain as day what the Bible says, man. Like God authored every day. And I think, you know, I when I really started to see that and I started to see, you know, in Matthew chapter nine, where Jesus walks up to the table with Matthew, you know, here he is a tax collector, the guy that's supposed to be the scoundrel and the worst of the worst, right? And the church would teach this, that they would walk up and go, oh, Matthew, I see potential in you. We're going to disciple you for six months. You know, if, if you can give up some things and repent and change your profession and you can start tithing and doing this and doing that, you know, then maybe you can join Jesus' team. But Jesus just walks into him and goes, all right, you're with me. Let's go. And, and then more so, you know, and probably more in the American church, I see, and I've traveled, I've been in 91 countries, the mission work and business work all over the world. And I see it more here with this, this kind of theological bent that there's something we have to sacrifice to get God's mercy. But then Jesus in Matthew 9, like, you know, we see this retort because he's hanging out with the reputable sinners. And everybody loves this because as Jesus goes, oh, I came for the outsider, not the insider. You know, who needs a physician, the healthier the sick? But there's another piece at the end of that passage. And Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But the church teaches that you sacrifice to get God's mercy. Yeah. And Jesus said the exact opposite. So God himself says, that's not what I'm looking for. And the reason, and see, that's the thing. And people are like, oh, no, 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 you got to give things up. No, you yeah. don't, because that was what the cross was. It was the sacrifice. So he wasn't looking for it anymore. He was looking for mercy because that's where, you know, a heart change and life change happens. Yeah, the truth and love and mercy are the hard things. That's the, that's the those are the things. That's why God is mostly what Jesus control. said. Like, if we really taught grace in church, then then we have to take away all the fix and repair. We have to take right. away all the control. We have to quit measuring results, and we actually have to let God be God. Yeah, but we yeah. can't we can't fully teach God's grace. So, like, I'm at a point, Toby, where I could argue with the best of them in the hermeneutics and the theology around this topic of sexuality. The truth is I'm willing to admit that I could be wrong about it being okay, but God's grace is so big that I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly the way I feel too. Like I, I, I no longer am going to live in the, the fear of God that is, Oh, he hates me or my, I, I can't be honest. Like that, that yeah. makes no sense anymore. All right. I said that was the last question, but I do have one more. Okay. At, at, since you ran around with all these pastors and all this stuff, did, 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 some of them hit you up? I'm like, Hey, just so you know, I'm exact. I, I'm man. I'm so proud of you. I wish I, I wish I could be ones, like you. None of the big ones. Um, it's, it's interesting though, to when you're on the other side, other issues that guys have dealt with in ministry. And we've seen, you know, we've seen plenty of guys have their falls and have their moments and whatnot. We've just watched it again with Jerry Falwell, you know, and his, his mess. And a lot of them have had the courage to reach out and just say, look, who else can I talk to? Like, um, you know, it hadn't been, but now I've had plenty of pastors reach out to me with the exact same issue. And I've walked with a lot of them through the process. And some, I think, have, have, I mean, plenty have gone through the process of really doing it the right way and being healthy. And a lot of them, I think they'll stay stuck most of the rest of their lives because fear controls them, right. you know, and, and it's, it's crazy. Cause I look back that, you know, Proverbs 24, man, the fear of other man's, it's funny how the answer to everything, whether we agree with it or not sits there in the scripture, man, and it what feels good or what's convenient. Yeah. And, I think, I think bigger than even sexuality, just Pat, 
lots of pastors can't be truthful or honest and say some of the things they think because their career, their family, their lifestyle will be destroyed. And so they, pastors who you would think could be the most honest and the most free, end up oftentimes not being at all. Well, I think they're the ones most in prison. And I think that's what, you know, I said when I was real little, actually, being a preacher's kid, I remember saying, one day I want to help pastors. I just want to be there for them because I recognize even as a kid, like they don't have anybody because it's too dangerous. You know, it's too scary. And that, you know, even today and uh, another person I was talking to was asking, like when I went through the affairs and the crisis of my marriage and when all of that stuff kind of broke, who did I talk to? And I was like, well, I went straight to family because there's nobody else you talk to. And even though I wasn't a pastor at the time, even though I wasn't in ministry, like it's so ingrained in me that it's not safe to talk to somebody, to right. be honest, because Grace applies to everybody but the pastor, <laughs> you know, right. like, and, and therefore I think part of the reason we see so many guys fail so miserably is not that everybody's not broken and they may not have still made the same mistake, but they fell so miserably in the process because they get too far down the line where they could have had help early. They might've made the mistake, but they didn't necessarily have to turn it into a travesty. Yeah. I I think too, the, the industry of the church now and the pastoral role is something that you aspire to be, to do now, as opposed to a call people, I think they they interfere with the calling. And so I'm actually really happy that you aren't a pastor now. Like you're using all your skills and probably doing some pastoral things in the real world. Now that that are probably more valuable. I've got, I've got two different people who call me on a regular basis. Like, listen, we got a quarter million dollar check sitting here. If you'll start another church. I'm like, that's not it. Like, I don't know how to do church different, but I know the way that I know how to do church isn't the right way. And I know that I've had a lot more effect. I mean, I, I, you know, I do this business consulting and it's funny. Even yesterday I got on with a guy to help him build you know, this, this sports business thing that he's working on and we're talking and it turns out he actually serves on staff at a church part time. And he figured out enough of my story and he started asking the questions and it turned into just really pouring into this guy's ministry world and his spiritual walk. And I'm like, this guy was paying me to be on the phone to talk about business. Yeah. And instead I'm there doing ministry. And that I think has been, I've seen more effect on this side and I miss being a pastor. Listen, Toby, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I would say it wasn't an aspiration for me. It was a calling. Um, but I think I I didn't have a reference for what that calling meant outside of the institution of church. Yeah. And I think I'm still learning what that looks like the other side, you know. Well, this has been awesome, dude. I really appreciate your time. Uh, yeah. This has been enlightening for sure. I had a lot of questions, and you answered them really truthfully and clear, so I, I appreciate sure. that. Michael Robinson, uh, so yeah, you want anybody to check you out anywhere? Any, anything? I mean, they can uh, go they, if, if, they, if they care to. You know, I'm, I'm on all social media, but I, the, probably the easiest place is just michaelrobinson.cc. Perfect. Um, you know, I've got it up there. I don't really blog a lot, but you know, some of my information and resources are there and, and it is a place. If somebody's struggling with this, if somebody's in the midst of this journey, that's really, you know, where I want to be a resource because, you know, and I don't make a business out of it. You know, I have business, (laughs) you know, this is, this is that ministry side where I get to just pour back into people's lives. Cause like I say, I used to think it was a unicorn story and I was the only one and you wake up and realize like they're, tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of men and women walking through very similar type journeys and trying to figure out what to do. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for your time, dude. Toby, thank you for doing that interview. 
Good yeah. job, Michael. That that was great. I was uh, when I was doing, I was like, how did when I was doing the interview, I was like, how did this marriage end? I know how do I approach? Did you cheat? Did you? And he just said it out out. You know, he that he he screwed up and cheated and all that. So I thought that was pretty clear. The way he told his story was about as clear as you could get um, for a pastor for an ex pastor. But uh, that was a good interview. It's kind of fun. I know you've got an interview coming up that you did by yourself. It is fun sometimes to do interviews without you. <laughs> oh, I, I can imagine why. Like, I like it's to go places without you some good sometimes. good and bad. Yes. I like to not, not do everything with you, you know what I mean? So th- th- <laughs> I tell my wife the same thing. You know, my wife tells me that. She says, I like to do things without you. I'm like, ah, well, you know, okay. So uh, that's pretty fun. I know there's some uh, interviews coming up that we might do the same. But anyway, that was a lot of fun. All right. Uh I think we should go ahead and get on out here. That was a long one. Join the BC Club. That's all that needs to be said. What you doing? You just listen to this killer episode, and if you're not in the BC Club, why not? It's, Christmas is coming up. Uh, you know, be thankful. All the things here. Why not help 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 the, help us out here? Christmas we, is coming up. What Toby's saying is, don't go through another Christmas alone. Yeah, you can join the BC Club. My you're God, not, you, last Christmas alone. You're, You're sitting that, there alone. naked, old, listening to this podcast. Why wouldn't you go ahead and just drop, what is it, seven? You can't drop $7 for what you just heard. <laughs> My God. Good yeah, Lord. Just, Another night watching what? The Great British Cake Off or what? I don't even know what it's called anymore. J- join the BC Club, you lonely bastard. Good <laughs> Lord. Just there, sitting there naked, all oiled up, listening to this fucking podcast. Just join it. <laughs> Good Lord. All oiled up. PCclub.com. All oiled up. That's how you do it. You know, if you got the house to yourself, you know what Matt knows what I'm talking about. Take your time. Yeah, uh, wife took oil the kids to see grandma and you <laughs> the oils. Central. You like the party, but the party never stops. I know you like the party, but the party never stops. Well, I know you, I know you, I know you. I know you wanna be here, so you just let go. No one's ever gonna tell you no. Well, I want to, cause I know you, I know you. But you party on. I don't need you You got kicked out Of your mother's house You stole money from her purse She finally tossed you out You should be ashamed Don't sit there judging me What a waste be the same if you could see So let's have another drink And we'll party on